The Live Richly podcast is sponsored by Keystone Wealth Partners. For a complimentary retirement map review, visit keystonewealthpartners.com slash map. Welcome to Live Richly, a show where life meets money. Join John Hagenson as he shares practical insights to help you make better financial moves. John is a certified financial planner, holds a master's degree in financial services, and a professional certification from Stanford University. He is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an SEC-registered investment advisory firm that manages over a half billion dollars for clients across the nation. Welcome to Live Richly, where my goal is to meet you at the intersection of some of life's most important places so that together we can make progress. And Warren Buffett made every pocket-protecting-wearing accountant really happy when he said, beware of the investment activity that produces applause. The great moves are usually greeted by yawns. Remember the heyday of the big three in San Antonio? Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, those San Antonio Spurs that won a couple of championships, ran deep into the playoffs with Coach Pop year after year? Well, aside from being a small market team, why else were they never very popular at a national level? Well, the answer is because they were boring. Watching Tim Duncan face up another seven-footer and jab step, jab step, and then shoot that obnoxious but perfect angled bank shot isn't quite as exciting as watching Ja Morant jump 45 inches in the air and dunk on top of a seven-footer. That's kind of fun to watch. Or Steph Curry taking pregame three-pointers all the way out to the logo and then all the way back in and not missing a single one. Like That's pretty fun. But those San Antonio Spurs were a phenomenal team while not being flashy and frankly being quite boring. But there are a lot of things in life where boring wins. I already mentioned the accountant. I don't care if my cardiologist is systematic and thoughtful and strategic and boring while performing heart surgery. As a former pilot, you want boring pilots that sit down in the cockpit, follow their flows and checklists, and do it exactly the same methodically every single time. You want Tim Duncan as your pilot. You don't want Stefan Marbury. You don't want J.R. Smith. Because if you remember, he'll probably forget the score and the situation late in the finals game. Probably be landing on the wrong runway. Investing is no different. There's been so much talk around the volatility, and it has been volatile. But you know what the core staples, long-standing, boring stocks have been doing? J&J, United Health, Caterpillar, basically flat. Many of the Dow companies. Coca-Cola and Verizon up a little north of 5%. And all the energy companies are flying high. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down around 5% year-to-date. What's getting crushed? Dave Portnoy and Penn Gaming, Robinhood, Zoom, Netflix, Peloton. And this is why in the midst of 2020, we were rebalancing our clients' accounts out of growth and into value. Now, of course, not with everything, but with the extra. And at the time, it's like, are you running away from obvious returns? Look at how much money everyone else is making. Do you want to try to shoot the moon for one year? Or do you want to have sustained success? Back to Warren Buffett, Morgan Housel, one of my favorite financial authors who wrote the book, The Psychology of Money, was recently on the Tim Ferriss podcast. On the podcast, Morgan Housel does what really only he can do so uniquely as he distills down these complex ideas around money in practical, tangible ways. One of the things he highlighted in both his book and on the Ferris podcast is this idea that Warren Buffett is not even close to one of the greatest investors of all time. 
he's averaged about 21% a year, which is phenomenal. But you have people like Jim Simons at Renaissance, another great book about him, the man who solved the market, has made over 60% per year. And they're both multi-billionaires. I think Simons is worth about $25 billion and Buffett about $100 billion. But the reason Buffett is way richer than the other really ridiculously rich person, even though he's gotten one-third the returns on average, is because Warren Buffett has done it for 75 years. In fact, as Housel talks about, if he had just stopped, like most people at 65 or 70 years old, he would have had a couple hundred million dollars, no one would have heard of him, and he would have been golfing down in Florida in a $5 million house. End of story. But that exponential component of compounding is what has made his net worth explode. And so while this is Warren Buffett, there is a direct application for you and I. And that is, it's not about trying to swing for the fences and get the highest returns, even if you can accomplish that over a one or a two year period, because that's going to be very difficult to sustain taking those big of bets and swings over 40 or 50 or 60 years without it blowing up. No, the thing we can learn from Warren Buffett is how do I get the best returns possible for the longest period of time. Put another way, what is the strategy that will make me the most money for the rest of my life? Not next year, for the rest of my life. Because that's how compound interest works. And it can be confusing. It's like there's a little bit of algae in a pond and every day it doubles. And at the one month mark, the whole pond is covered in algae and you say, well, when was it half full of algae? And the answer is day 29. The day right before the end of the month. That's how compound interest works. So if the last two years have taught us anything, it's to stay disciplined, rebalance, and do not get too caught up in the flash. It's time for my rule for money on today's podcast. Today's rule, patience is a virtue when it comes to your investing. Let me say that again. We've all heard patience is a virtue, but what I'm talking about is dot, dot, dot when it comes to your investing. You want to have God challenge your patience for a very impatient person naturally like I am. And actually, frankly, like Brittany is, she may be more impatient than me. Go through four adoptions. Both are two domestic adoptions as well as our international ones. It is just hurry up and wait. Fill out a lot of paperwork. Go through this long process. Okay, you're ready to go. Now it'll be a while. Fly over to Ethiopia. Come back. Wait. But how much beauty is there in the waiting? How much do we learn about ourselves in that stillness and that quietness where we are forced to remind ourselves we are not in control? We can't dictate everything and we are going to have to trust that there is a bigger plan and have peace that things are out of our control. This very same concept applies to our investments, whether it's Black Monday or the dot-com bubble bursting or hyperinflation or the great financial crisis or two airplanes hitting the Twin Towers or a global pandemic or record levels of national debt, or the next Trump tweet, or the next trillion Biden spends, how much control really do you and I have over that? Yet it makes a huge impact on our money. Two more great Warren Buffett quotes while we're on the Buffett train today. You know, they always say it's a lot easier to quote Warren Buffett than invest like him. So I am going all in on that. And I quote, successful investing takes time, discipline, and patience. No matter how great the talent or effort, some things just take time. You can't produce a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant, end quote. Another Buffett quote, the stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. And this is the primary reason why the majority of people would benefit from a financial advisor. We are impatient. 
We are reactionary and we are irrational when it comes to our money. We need someone objective who can zoom out and provide perspective so that you don't sell in 01 or 08 or 2020. If you did that, you destroyed your long-term potential for growth. I did a retirement map review for someone just this week in our office in Chandler, sold in March of 2020, locked in all their losses. Where do you think they're invested right now? Over $2 million still sitting in cash here in 2022. That mistake could pay for a whole lot of advisory fees over the rest of that person's life. Had that advisor just helped them avoid that one major mistake. But just like the presidents of the United States, you don't get credit for the crisis you help avoid. And this is the challenge so often with trying to define the value in a financial advisor. If that person had an advisor, they rebalanced the accounts. He never sold out. He's got well over a million dollars more two years later than what he actually has. He may still look a year or two later and say, ah, gosh, I don't know. We're kind of underperforming because we've got a little bit of small cap and you know, international's not doing that well. Maybe I should just go buy index funds on my own. I don't need an advisor. It'd save me the money. Well, what that person doesn't realize is, hey, you'd have a million dollars less if you were trying to do this on your own because of your own behavior. So to recap this first part of the podcast, boring wins and patience is a virtue. Isaiah 55, eight and nine says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. We've got this tyrant right now killing innocent civilians in Ukraine. And in tragic times like this, The last thing you want people to say is the phrase, God is in control. It'll be okay. There's a bigger plan. I mean, when you find out you have cancer or you lose a loved one or you're getting divorced or you lose a child way too early, you're having financial struggles. The last thing you want is someone to say, God's got this. He's in control. Whether you believe that to be true or not, what you want is someone to empathize because the first flinch when someone says that to you is where is he then? What do you mean God's in control? Well, that's even scarier because if he actually is in control and I just lost a child or I just found out I've got three months to live, what kind of God is that? Doesn't sound like a very good one or not a very powerful one because if he's powerful and he's loving, then how am I going through this? How is Russia invading Ukraine and killing people without any value for the sanctity of life? But as Isaiah said, we aren't God. And frankly, I don't want to serve a God that me and my finite human brain can understand and fully comprehend. That wouldn't be a very big God, not one that could create the entire universe and hold it in his hand. When my family broke apart my senior year of high school and my mom moved to Riverwood Drive, I had no idea that she'd be next door neighbors with my future in-laws. Could I have seen that as a 17-year-old? No, this is going to be great because when you have seven kids and an incredible wife and you're 39 years old and have this life that you have, all of it would have been sparked by this difficulty in your life today. We know that James talks about in chapter one that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. That whole idea that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. You go to the gym, you break down your muscles, you get sore, they build back stronger. I simply want to encourage all of us today that when things seem bleak, when it appears there's no light at the end of the tunnel, that there's no good that could ever come from this, that's the amazing thing about this God that we serve. He can take our sin all of our bad decisions are choices that we've made that we're not proud of. And he says, I'm bigger than that. I'm the great restorer. I can take this and make beauty out of ashes. And while my thoughts and prayers remain with Ukraine, I also trust in the truth. There is a ripple effect that will extend far wider than I'll ever be able to see or imagine. 
Now I want to transition over to a few client examples that have occurred over the last couple of weeks here at Keystone Wealth Partners so that you can learn from the experiences of others. First is a client who came in. They actually happen to be overfunded, but the primary question was, can I retire? We'd like to retire in the next couple of years. And by the way, this is the number one most asked question in retirement map reviews. Either I just retired, is my plan set up right? Do you think this will sustain me? What might I be missing? How could I improve this? Or I'd like to retire in the next three years or five years or 10 years. What should I be doing to reposition myself? And are you seeing anything that would maybe make it so I couldn't retire? Am I on the right track? And so here's the number one proxy at a 30,000 foot level of whether you can retire. Take all of your liquid assets and look at a four to a 5% drawdown rate. Most financial planners would say that that's even pretty aggressive with rates being low and inflation high and valuations high. But for you to get a generalized idea, an estimate of whether you're close, that's a very good starting place. So to put some numbers around this to better conceptualize it, if you have a million dollars saved for retirement, you can take about 40 to 50 grand a year as a maximum amount. And potentially in most simulations, you won't run out of money, historically speaking. But so if you have a million dollars and you need 80,000 a year out of the portfolio, an 8% drawdown rate, you're almost certainly going to run out of money. You either need to cut your expenses so that you're down to that 40 or 50,000 a year out of the portfolio, or you need to work longer and save more. Now remember, how much am I getting in social security? When will that start? How much will my spouse get in social security? Do I have a pension? Will I inherit money or need to care for an aging parent? Even the answer to a simple question like, do I want to die with the check to the morgue bouncing? Would I like to die with about what I have now to go to the kids and charities and the church? Or do I want to die with a lot more? Is legacy a huge priority to me? Because even the answers to those questions can dramatically change whether or not you can retire, should retire, need to work longer. And that's why there are a lot of firms like Keystone Wealth Partners, where you can go talk to a certified financial planner, a credentialed fiduciary, and they will map out your basic retirement plan free of charge. So you really don't need to go about that alone. But this person came in very intelligent and really didn't have much of an idea at all of whether they could retire. And I think even just this basic knowledge of a 4 to 5% drawdown rate would have shown them with a couple million dollars that they had saved and their modest spending needs that they're fine. They were in good shape. Next example is how a 1035 exchange works. This client had a garbage high cost variable annuity. Internal expenses were over 4% a year between the guaranteed withdrawal benefit, enhanced death benefit, M&E expenses, sub-account charges, administrative fees, 4% a year, as evidenced by the fact that this client had owned it for about 15 years and their money had gone up quite a bit, but if they were just in a basic index fund, they would have had almost triple what their account was right now. Inefficient investments and extraordinarily high costs. You may be listening and have one of these terrible annuities. Well, the problem is, even though they had lacked the growth they should have received, they still did have growth because it's been sitting in this variable annuity in mutual funds. They're called sub-accounts, but basically mutual funds for all intents and purposes for 15 years. And the market's done very well during that 15-year period. So this client says, so do I pay capital gains if I get out of this thing? And the answer is no. It's last in, first out with annuities. So all the growth comes out first off the top, assuming that you do not annuitize it, which I'm not going to get into right now. And all of that is taxed at ordinary income rates. Another downside to annuities and non-qualified accounts is that although you get tax deferral, I just mentioned it, it comes out at ordinary income rates and there's no step up in basis if you pass away. So these are terrible vehicles to pass on to kids because instead of it being an ETF or a stock or a mutual fund that has the cost basis step up at the date of death, 
to that value where your kids only have to pay tax on the difference between your date of death value and whenever they sell it, it often wipes out significant unrealized gains and annuity does not do that. So it passes to your child and then they have to pay all the tax at their ordinary income rate on the growth. Enter the 1035 exchange. We have extraordinarily low cost annuities that still provide the tax deferred wrapper in low cost index funds. There is no commission paid. There are no surrender penalties. It's fully liquid. And you can bring over your current cost basis through this 1035 exchange and it's not a taxable event. The IRS is essentially saying it's like kind. It's the same type of thing. You're going from one annuity to another. So we are not going to tax you on that transfer. If you have an annuity and you're not sure about it, you should go talk to a fiduciary and say, what are my options? Because for many of our clients, they're able to get out of high cost annuities, pay no taxes, and get into something that's much more consistent with their long-term goals and strategy, all the while keeping it off their return. I want to talk about one technical topic, and then I will wrap up the show. This is my segment where I try to help you become smarter on more complex or less known aspects of personal finance and investing. Today, I want to talk to you about exchange funds. No, not ETFs, not exchange traded funds, exchange funds. An exchange fund is an option to lower the risk of a concentrated stock. But of course, there are caveats to keep in mind. And NerdWallet had a great article on this, and I'll be referencing parts of that article as I explain the ins and outs of an exchange fund. You'll also hear these referred to as swap funds, but it allows you to substitute or replace a concentrated stock position with a diversified basket of stocks of the same value, reducing obviously your portfolio risk because now you're well diversified. And here's the key. The reason you do it is because it puts off realizing the taxable gain until later. Oftentimes company executives may end up heavily invested in their employer stock. And some companies may require that some of their senior managers have a certain percentage of stock ownership to align their interests with the company. We see this at our Chandler office being right next to one of the biggest Intel plants in the country. Their high-level executives often have three, five, 10, 20, or more million dollars in Intel stock. And you say, well, Intel's a great company, John. Yeah, it was also down like almost 80% during the dot-com bubble bursting. So there's significant risk, even if it's a good growing company, by having 20% or 40% or 60% or 80% of your liquid net worth in one company. But oftentimes, these concentrated positions have a tremendous amount of unrealized gain. So it puts a stockholder between a rock and a hard place because on one hand, They'd like to reduce risk and get diversified. On the other hand, they're going to trigger millions in some cases of dollars of capital gains. Is there another solution? And the answer is yes, insert exchange fund. And besides being a company executive, there are other reasons you may end up with a highly concentrated position. Maybe one stock has just dramatically outperformed the rest. You bought Apple in 1987 and somehow you sustained the three or four drawdowns of 50% or more And you benefited as the stock split and split and split. And all of a sudden you're sitting there going, I got $30 million in Apple stock. By the way, this would be a good problem to have. Maybe you inherited a family business or some other longstanding investment. Well, let's take a look under the hood. Let me show you how this works. An exchange fund aggregates the concentrated stock positions of many investors. So you're bringing all of your Intel stock in my example, if you're an executive. And that's getting added to the fund. Well, someone else is bringing all of their Apple stock and someone else is bringing all of their General Electric, just joking, General Electric's down 80%. Maybe it's Amazon or Exxon or Procter & Gamble or J&J or whatever it might be. And all of these concentrated positions are put in one fund, which provides diversification so that no one asset has an outsized impact on your overall investment portfolio. 
And it basically ends up mirroring a broad-based stock market index. You can swap your concentrated position for a partnership interest or share in the exchange fund, which avoids a taxable event, like I mentioned, and provides you a tax-deferred growth instead. Exchange funds will typically reinvest capital gains and dividends, and a taxable event occurs once you redeem and sell your partnership shares in the fund. And at that point, the cost basis that you originally carried over from the concentrated stock is the same as what your basis was in the exchange fund. The number one, two, three, four, and you could say five most important benefits of exchange funds is diversification. It's the same answer. The primary reason that you are doing this is for diversification. And the little Joey in the pouch that's also important is the tax deferral. You're going, wait, John, I can take a $5 million position of concentrated stock, get it diversified, and pay no taxes in doing so. This thing sounds like magic. Is this a unicorn at the end of the rainbow? Well, like most things, no, there are some drawbacks. Number one, you have to be an accredited investor. So over $5 million net worth to participate. Again, that's not usually a problem because if you want to do an exchange fund, it's because you have a really highly concentrated position. You probably do have over a $5 million net worth. Second drawback is liquidity. Generally, you can't sell your partnership shares for at least seven years. So if that concentrated position represents a significant portion of where you're going to drive living expenses, or you have some other short-term liquidity need for that money, this may not work. And by the way, practically who cares? Because the whole idea is to avoid paying taxes for now and continue to get tax deferred growth. If you plan on selling a significant portion, well, you're already diversifying because you're selling the position. And number two, you're triggering taxes either way. So the liquidity shouldn't be a problem for the seven years, but it is something worth noting in case you think you don't need the money. And in year four or five, you do. And now it's sitting in this exchange fund. And the third drawback is that exchange funds generally are required to keep a 20% minimum of total gross assets in certain qualifying investments to help minimize portfolio volatility. You say, what are these qualifying investments? Commodities, real estate, sometimes things that are less liquid and maybe even riskier than the traditional stock holdings themselves. So the three drawbacks, you got to have a bunch of money. It's not very liquid. And there may be 20% inside of that exchange fund that you don't like the holdings of. Oh, and number four, fees. Obviously, with any investment, there's costs. Exchange funds typically charge more in ongoing management fees than certainly a low-cost ETF would. If you're one of our clients and listening to this podcast, you likely have already had this situation solved for you in the planning process. But if you run across something like this, just know that we do have access to utilize exchange funds. If you run into a friend or someone else who is in this sort of situation, you can send them to us and we can discuss whether it makes sense based upon those pros and cons for them to investigate it a bit further. I want to end today's show with a common theme from my visits with prospective clients and clients over the last couple of weeks. We tend to really beat ourselves up over our mistakes, don't we? I mean, we don't want to make mistakes. We don't like seeing our children make mistakes and then watch them suffer the consequences of those mistakes, right? I mean, as a parent, you're like, oh, how can I help my kid avoid pain? I don't like that. It hurts my heart. But as I said earlier, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We learn from our mistakes. That's how we grow. It's the whole idea that failures are opportunities to learn and to grow. It reminds me of being a student pilot in South Florida. I'm on my first cross-country solo. You know, so this is kind of weird because you've had an instructor in the right seat with you. And all of a sudden, you're flying 50, 100 miles away from your typical home airport where you've been doing touch-and-goes with an instructor. And you're looking out around the horizon and over to the right seat and nobody's sitting there. And on this specific flight for me, I'm over Lake Okeechobee, 
and a weather system comes in and I'm just swamped in the soup. There are clouds everywhere. So I start practicing what I'm supposed to. I'm circling, I'm climbing, but I'm pretty terrified. And thankfully I ended up back at our home airport and I remember landing and telling our instructor, I got caught in the clouds. That was just gnarly. Like that was crazy. It was terrifying. My knees were shaking. And he said, what's the lesson here? And I say, well, I kind of underestimated when I looked at the weather prior to the flight, because of course, before you do this cross country, part of this exercise is to do all the flight planning. Like here's where I'm going to go. And here's the waypoints I'm going to look at, because of course, at that point, you're not an instrument rated pilot. So you're dead reckoning off of everything and you need visual conditions. And so a big part of the plan is, are you going to have visual conditions based upon the weather forecasts? I said, yeah, most likely should be fine. Well, I never did that again. And when I was a flight instructor, I made sure to tell all of my student pilots you better be darn sure that when you take off in an airplane, you are not going to get caught in instrument conditions as a non-instrument rated pilot. That's the number one cause of death for pilots. They get in the clouds. They're not instrument rated. They get spatial disorientation and they crash. And so thankfully I made it back safely. And because of that, I was a better pilot. The downside to these events, they can also make us irrational. What if I had gotten back to the airport and just said, I'm never flying again. Even if my instructor said, John, I mean, we can avoid you getting in weather like that by a little bit better planning. And by the way, you'll be instrument rated in a couple of months. And then you'll be able, even if you get in weather to fly off of your instruments, you'll be fine. Nope. I'm done. I'm never flying again. I'm going to go back and wash dishes at the pizza parlor for the rest of my life. Forget being a pilot. It's over. This is where we need to be very careful because the same thing happens with our money. We can either learn from all the mistakes that each of us have made. I mean, people are constantly coming into our office or on Zoom and saying, John, I did this. And they're lamenting all these past mistakes. And I go, join the club, join the club. Warren Buffett dumped all of his airline stocks during the pandemic. You could say, well, maybe that was rational. I don't know, but it doesn't look very good right now. He's Warren Buffett. He hasn't outperformed the broad markets for 20 years. He's been very, very average and he's worth $100 billion. Join the club. If Buffett has a tough time beating the S&P 500, I think we all can give ourselves a little bit of grace. So the key is learning from those mistakes. I shared that with that investor that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. What have you learned from that? I asked him, what were your takeaways now, two years later, as your emotions died down. And so if you are someone with money still sitting on the sideline, you know, cause valuations are high or markets near all time highs or Russia's invading Ukraine and you've got excess cash CDs bonds. And these are monies that you don't intend to use over the next five to 10 years. You should be asking yourself, am I doing this because it's wise and it's rooted in rules and a defined investment strategy, or am I doing this out of emotion? I hope this podcast has been helpful and that you have a fantastic weekend. You can go back and watch highlights of those old San Antonio Spurs championship teams, or you can just sit around and watch paint dry. Either way, we'll be about the same level of entertainment. And before acting upon anything discussed today, speak with an advisor near you if you aren't sure where to turn and you'd like our help. You can visit us at keystonewealthpartners.com for a complimentary retirement map review. And remember, we are the wealthiest society in the history of planet Earth. Let's make our money matter. John is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an SEC-registered investment advisor that manages over a half billion dollars for clients across the nation. All opinions expressed by John or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Keystone Wealth Partners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Keystone Wealth Partners may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.